Today's episode of The Energy Gang is brought to you by Block Energy Autonomous Community Energy Systems. Renewable, reliable, residential energy at scale is not a thing of the future. Block Energy is providing resilient energy to communities now. Much more than Solar Plus Storage, the modular and scalable Block Energy residential microgrid system is the first of its kind. Visit blockenergy.com to learn more about the layers of reliable, clean local power coming soon to a neighbourhood block near you. Hello and welcome to The Energy Gang, a conversation show about the fast-changing world of energy. I'm Ed Crooks. For our last show of 2022, we're going to be reviewing what's been a tumultuous year for energy and taking a look at the highs and the lows of what happened over the past 12 months. It's my great pleasure to welcome back two old friends who've been appearing on The Energy Gang regularly. We have Melissa Lott, who's the Director of Research at the Centre on Global Energy Policy at Columbia University. Hi, Melissa. How are you? Hey, Ed. Doing well. Glad to be here. Look forward to looking back on the year. And we also have Amy Harder, who's the Executive Editor of Cypher, which is an energy news service supported by Breakthrough Energy. Hi, Amy. How are you? Hello. I'm doing well. Uh, Thanks so much for having me on again. Thanks very much, both of you, for coming along and joining us today. So I want to get right into it, start off at the beginning of the year, thinking about one of the big stories of January. This is actually something that happened in December of 2021, but it was really January of this year that people started to talk about it. And that was the announcement from the Department of Energy's Loan Programme Office, which is the office that offers loan guarantees to energy projects. They announced that they were back in business. They said open for business again, starting to make uh, commitments to back lending to innovative low-carbon energy projects. The first project that they announced they were conditionally going to support was this company called Monolith, which is uh, working in something called methane pyrolysis for producing low-carbon hydrogen. And they have a project to do that, a place called Olive Creek in Nebraska. I have to admit, until I heard about this, I didn't actually know what methane pyrolysis was. So I think we should probably get into a bit about that. But let's think perhaps first of all about the significance of the Loan Programme Office. Melissa, when you thought about this, I think this was one of your selections as one of the most important developments of 2022. Why is the Loan Programme Office important? Yes, I think for a couple of different reasons, I find this announcement, but also the broader role of the Loan Programme Office, DOE, and the effects of this whole of government approach that the Biden administration came in so, you know, vocally and loudly with, To me, this was actually showing what happens after you have that focus for a significant period of time. So within this, I mean, when you look at pyrolysis, when you look at taking methane, so CH4, and separating out the C from the Hs into two useful products, that to me is a really practical and productive conversation to think about in the transition, how do we use the molecules that are available to us to transition to net zero and still create the things that we want to create in the system? And it really was setting the stage for what I think is a massive role for the loan program office and for these types of grants and loans. And I know, Amy, you've got thoughts on this too. So I'll, I'll stop there for now, but you've got thoughts as well. Yeah. Well, I would say this announcement um, is important for two reasons. One, overall, the loan program office went dormant for several years. Most people know Solyndra. And unfortunately, we will probably be hearing more about Solyndra next year as Republicans take control of the House. But it's really having a resurgence which is filling such an important role to help sort of unlock a lot of private capital by providing these loans. And so to me, it's interesting to see that the first loan out the door under this new administration is this sort of mostly unknown technology, uh, methane paralysis in the in the rainbow of hydrogen. I think people call this turquoise. Uh, to, to Melissa's point, though, this company is playing an important role in the energy transition, but it's also being able to produce material that can go into tires. So it can try to make money from multiple different streams. But then just recently, uh, you know, right around the time that we recorded this podcast, the the department announced another loan guarantee to uh, a battery manufacturing facility. And so it's interesting to me to see the range of t- technologies that the program uh, is, is, is loaning to. I will be watching to see how much risk does this program take on? Because politically, you you know, there can be challenges to taking on too much risk. At the same time, that's the whole purpose of this program. And that is such a key point, what Amy just said, which is the idea of there's criticisms about things like Solyndra happening, but there's counter criticisms about 
you know, is the investment portfolio from DOE, should it be, you know, some investment grade thing that we'd have at a bank? No, this is about pushing edges and taking some risks that's, you know, seeding these innovations that we need in the future. So this is exciting to see on multiple levels. So Amy, you just mentioned the dread name Solyndra, and I think we should clarify for some listeners who might be in the happy position of not knowing what that is. I actually had to explain Solyndra to a junior colleague the other day, and it made me think, well, I'm really getting old now if there are people people in this business who don't know uh, the whole dreaded story of Solyndra. Do you want to just explain a little bit about what happened there? This was an innovative solar company backed by the Obama administration, right? Yes, certainly. And I recall walking down to the White House and taking piles and piles of emails about the the whole loan guarantee that the Energy Department gave to Solyndra. So Solyndra was awarded a, about a half a billion, around $500 million loan guarantee under the Obama administration around 2008. And then, of course, the company went bankrupt. And that is what started the firestorm uh, by Republicans the Republicans focused a lot on sort of this allegations of cronyism and favoritism, and there were politicians involved and Democratic donors involved. And so there was that sort of one line. What I care more about, though, is what so- the challenges of Solyndra showed us, which is Solyndra produced these certain types of solar panels that just lost out from a cost perspective to Chinese-made solar panels. And that was really the story. And that's an okay challenge to have. And it's okay that that company went bankrupt. Now, I I don't remember the details of the cronyism allegations and things like that, so we can set that aside. Um, but it, it raised a lot of concerns about how can we be a manufacturing home base for companies like this. And now we're, we're going to see more of that discussion in the coming years with the Biden administration trying to bring back on shore some of these um, solar manufacturing facilities. But it was really a firestorm. And you know, Jonathan Silver, who was the loan program officer at the time, yeah, I've known him for a long time. I'm sure all of us have. And, you know, at a certain point, he's like, don't talk to me about Solyndra. And, you know, I feel bad bringing up the S word, but we got it. And we have to learn lessons from that, both to be able to take risks, uh, but also to be able to know when to not take those risks. I think that's absolutely right. And as you say, I suspect it is a name we're going to be hearing more about in the months to come. And definitely, if anything goes wrong with the new round of projects, which the Department of Energy is extending loan guarantees to. And it's safe to say something will go wrong because exactly to Melissa's point, as you say, these are not always absolutely cast iron certainties. By definition, these are often innovative projects, projects that are at the start of commercial deployment. They are uh, needing demonstration at scale and so on. Things are bound to go wrong. And when they do go wrong, all that history the whole Cylindra saga is bound to be dug up again. On to the next month then. I think February, really the big story of the year, was Russia's invasion of Ukraine, had enormous consequences for energy. It had enormous humanitarian consequences as well, of course. Tens of thousands of people killed, millions of people displaced, many millions of people living in terrible hardship because of the effects of the war. When we think about energy in terms of the focus of this podcast, though, it obviously had very wide implications because of the decision essentially by large parts of the world, particularly the US, the EU and their allies, to stop buying Russian energy. Russia, one of the world's largest producers of oil and of natural gas. And you have a lot of countries saying we're not going to buy that anymore. That's had the effect of tightening world markets very sharply and setting prices absolutely through the roof in lots of places, particularly for natural gas. And that's a crisis which is really still going on. It perhaps hasn't been quite as bad as it could have been because up until recently, the winter was actually fairly mild in Europe and Europe had reasonably good stocks of natural gas. Natural gas in storage was at a reasonably high level. But of course, there's still a long way to go in the winter yet weather has got cold recently. And we've also had this condition, which has been a big problem just in the past couple of weeks. The notorious Dunkelflauter, the dark doldrums, low wind speeds, overcast conditions uh, hurting solar generation. So in general, uh, renewable power generation across Europe has been very weak. And that sent 
European power prices absolutely sky high. It's been a reminder that the energy crisis in Europe is absolutely still not over yet. When you look at all these consequences, the fallout of the Russian invasion of Ukraine, everything that flowed from it, Melissa, what do you think are the lessons we should be taking from energy then from, as I say, what is this kind of huge event in the year, the defining event probably of 2022? What do you think this tells us about the future of energy? So I think a big thing, so this crisis, which we can argue is the first true energy crisis, because this isn't just about oil and gas, it's about coal, it's about supply chains. I know, Amy, you wrote, and we wrote at the Center on Global Energy Policy about nuclear supply chains. But this was one of those crises where you have an energy crisis, a humanitarian crisis, you have a food crisis. Um, We all know the linkages now. If you didn't before, after this year, you know the linkages between natural gas, ammonia, fertilizers, food, all of those things. And then we have this looming climate crisis. So what I'll say is something that really was driven home for me and for a lot of us, I think, is that we don't have many tools when it comes to addressing energy security concerns when you're talking about a true energy crisis. And actually to develop those tools, we have to start investing now to have more tools in a number of years. There's only so much gas that we can move around on ships. There's only so much that we can do to move energy around and to shift our energy sources in a short period of time from, you know, late February to this winter in the Northern Hemisphere. And so what it drove home for a number of us is that energy security is a big piece of all of this. The geopolitics of the transition are heavy and real. And as we think about all those smooth, beautiful pathways that modelers like myself put together in our tools about how we get to net zero, the reality of this transition is that it's going to be bumpy and there's a lot more than technology and economics involved. Um, So we need to think about security and geopolitics and all that. And this crisis will probably speed up the transition in some parts of the world and slow it down in others. Yeah, I would just uh, add two comments on that with regards to energy and renewable energy specifically. Uh, The International Energy Agency has released two reports in just the last few months really showing the impact on an aggregate basis, at least. To Melissa's point, this transition will be very uneven around the world with developed countries progressing at a pace that's different from developing countries. But with that caveat said... The IEA and its renewable energy report uh, just out in the last uh, several days, it increased its uh, renewable energy forecast 76% upward in terms of deployment of renewable energy from just two years earlier. And IEA said in its report that that's largely due to the fallout from the um, from Russia's invasion of Ukraine uh, in, an, in its world energy outlook earlier this fall. It also found that um, fossil fuels could peak earlier because of this crisis. So although we are seeing a short-term rush uh, to natural gas and coal in some instances, I think longer term, this could help speed up the transition to cleaner energy. But, you know, this is not the way anybody wants to do it. And I think to your point, Ed, first and foremost is the fact that much of Ukraine is living in the dark this winter. Forgetting high energy prices, they don't have any energy. So those are the things that, you know, should be keeping all of us up at night. Yeah, certainly. And I think that it's really important that we never forget that in all the discussion about longer term consequences and so on, that those humanitarian impacts are absolutely the most important things and the most important realities that none of us should ever forget about what's going on right now. That does then bring us to March and the big event that we have chosen for that month, which is the EU's energy policy response to the invasion, the Repower EU plan, which was first launched in March, which was really intended, its headline goal was, how can we get Europe off Russian energy completely by 2030? A lot of ideas in there, very wide-ranging package, seems like a lot of that is very sensible. As you say, they're talking about boosting renewable energy, there's a big push on there to get to 45% of all the EU's energy coming from renewables by 2030, which means about 70% or so of all Europe's power coming from renewables, pushes on energy efficiency and so on. There are, there are other ideas that I think maybe make less sense. For instance, they're talking about big contribution from hydrogen 
within the coming decade. I think that's very, very ambitious. If you look at the contribution that hydrogen can make to energy supplies, that's much more of a 2030s issue really than it is going to be one of the 2020s, I think, given all the technological technological issues that still need to be solved. But definitely they are heading in some sensible directions. As you say, this probably isn't the way that any of us would have wanted this progress to come about, but they are making progress definitely towards a lower carbon economy. What have you made of that plan, Amy? I mean, as you've looked at it and you've looked at the kind of things that they're doing, broadly, do you think Europe's heading in the right direction? Yes, certainly. I think, you know, Europe has always been at the forefront of clean energy. You know, they had the European Green Deal in response to the the global COVID-19 pandemic. And now they're really trying to double down on clean energy in response to this crisis, despite renewing some coal plants and building LNG, liquefied natural gas facilities in record time. I think you're also seeing um, a redoubling of clean energy as well. And so I think next winter will be extremely difficult. This winter, they had some reserves of natural gas and they've been able to stockpile a lot of gas. I think the real test, unfortunately, will be next winter. A real test both for their ability to keep the lights on, but also to remain committed um, to all of these climate plans. Yeah, sorry. I agree with Amy that the the winters are going to be the tests and it's not over after this year. So I know that we talked about how the severity of the winter was going to affect plans in Western Europe in terms of how they're responding to the crisis. And I agree, next winter is going to matter a lot too. We pulled a lot of rabbits out of houts this year. And uh, what's going to happen in the next year as we have winter in the southern hemisphere and then it comes back to the north again? Yeah, I do agree with that. Is This is certainly an issue which is not just for this winter, not even for next winter, but for it'll be for the winter after that. And the winter after that, probably there are definitely more positive trends you can see coming in. There's going to be investment in new sources of gas supply and so on that's going to bring additional uh, fuel into Europe. Renewables will be built out that'll help contribute to power supply and so on. But yeah, definitely, as you say, this is something which is going to continue to be a very difficult situation for a lot of people for a long time to come. Moving on then to our next month, to April, that then is a reminder of, if you like, the other big problem and the big concern about energy, which is climate change. And so just as we're worrying in a very intense, immediate way about the reliability and affordability of energy supplies right now, the IPCC in April published one of the reports from what's called its sixth assessment report, with these complicated uh, bits of terminology with these kind of uh, international reports. The headline I thought that was really significant in that was they uh, made the comment that when you look at the pledges that governments around the world have made in terms of emissions, we are not going to be on course to meet that goal of the Paris Climate Agreement of limiting global warming to 1.5 degrees Celsius. I don't know, when when you look at those reports, Melissa, when you look at what the IPCC is saying, does that make you think that we should give up on 1.5 degrees as a climate goal? It certainly doesn't make me think we should give up. I mean, what it's telling us is that and I know that the evidence is so clear, and it comes through in these reports, that climate change is happening. We're not doing enough to bend the curve to reduce emissions, to get us you know, to well below two, get us to that 1.5. And there are still huge disparities in terms of the amount of emissions, per capita emissions that come from different people in different parts of the world. And so we are dealing with a lot of different challenges, making sure that we have sufficient energy for development to improve quality of life, while also not having that be in tension with the climate that is already changing and then adapting to those changes. So to me, it just highlights what we need to do. You know, it says we have technologies, we can move quickly if we choose to. We're not choosing to in enough places to really bend that curve. But I go back to my first, you know, awareness of COP and, you know, observing the first COPs that I was a part of and just thinking about how much progress we have made. So the next step is what choices are we going to make in terms of how quickly to bend that curve? Amy, what did you think about that report? Well, one thing that I know is a topic for a following month in our discussion here today is that one uh, technological upshot of this report 
is that the UN said perhaps more emphatically than ever that direct air capture, removing carbon from the atmosphere long after it's been emitted is is going to have to play an important role no matter how we transition to cleaner energy in the future. And so I think that has prompted a pretty large debate about to what degree should we rely on this technology? How does it compare and contrast to point source carbon capture? But my reading of that report made it pretty clear that the UN collection of all these scientists do think that technology, that bucket of technologies is going to be an important piece. Yeah, I think that's absolutely right. And I think, uh, as you say, that's a great segue to what we're going to be talking about for May, which is a series of announcements from the Biden administration on committing pretty large amounts of money to carbon capture and storage, both in terms of research into uh, finding locations where carbon dioxide could be stored and funding for projects for, as you say, direct air capture, literally sucking carbon dioxide out of the atmosphere. That technology is obviously still in its early stages. It's still, in principle, an expensive thing to do, and clearly because the concentration of carbon dioxide in the atmosphere is a lot less than the concentration of carbon dioxide in exhaust gases that come out of a power plant or out of an industrial process. You need to move a lot more gas around. It's just uh, intrinsically going to be a more complicated and a more expensive thing to do to capture that carbon. But my sense of it is, is that if we are really ultimately going to get serious about putting definite limits on carbon dioxide concentrations in the atmosphere and on the global warming that results from that, we are going to have to do something like this kind of carbon capture, direct air capture at scale. And people talk quite a lot about um, geoengineering and all these kind of wacky ideas for easing global warming by spraying stuff into the atmosphere and so on. Those kind of things really kind of make the hair on the back of my neck prickle. They seem very alarming. If you're thinking about doing something sort of ambitious and large scale to tackle global warming, I do think thinking about direct capture uh, I do think thinking about direct air capture first should be the way to go. And actually, I think it's then very positive and a good thing that the Biden administration is putting significant amounts of money into thinking about how to develop that. But I don't know, Melissa, what do you think? I think it comes through really clear in the analysis and the modeling is that, you know, we have reached a point where we have been emitting and putting so much stuff into the atmosphere that we need to be considering these types of solutions. Um, as we transition infrastructure, you know, how do we bring emissions down as far as we can? Absolutely. But then clean up what we cannot economically remove. So in some cases, using things like direct air capture and then also carbon capture, probably in industry, I'm thinking about cement and other things, um, makes a lot of sense. And that's, you know, verifiable capture and storage of greenhouse gas emissions. So that's an, it's evidence of where we are. And it's also evidence, I think, of where the conversation has evolved to. So we've got now the fossil energy office, including carbon management in that at Department of Energy. And we see these big investments, um, you know, the $2.25 billion from the bipartisan infrastructure law effort around CO2 storage sites, in addition to other investments, really showing an increased focus on it. You know, if we're going to get all the way to net zero, what technologies do we need to have ready to pull off the net part of that? My my two cents here is really just that removing carbon from the atmosphere, to me, goes in a very different category than, say, geoengineering, which can have a lot of potential repercussions in a negative way, as opposed to this, which it may not work, it may be really energy in intensive. Uh, the, the scale is just mind-boggling, but it doesn't have, you know, the wide-scale atmospheric impacts than something like solar solar geoengineering, which is why, as you said, Ed, I think it's important that this is definitely part of the equation now, and then perhaps we leave solar geoengineering of all types for another day. So. The technology we've chosen uh, for June is another type of low-carbon energy that could contribute to 
increasing energy supplies without increasing emissions, which is nuclear power. And the various interesting things happened relating to nuclear power in June. The thing that was really telling, I thought, in that month was that the uh, state legislature in California voted uh, $75 million to support aging power plants to keep them in operation, which could go to the Diablo Canyon uh, nuclear power plant, which is last remaining one in California, which had been scheduled for closure, had been the subject of a lot of opposition from environmental campaigners and so on, and was one of those projects that's really sort of iconic, I think, in terms of what has been a general shift of opinion, I think, among a lot of people, which is that people who might not have been very supportive of nuclear power in the past are now saying, well, hang on, when you look at it, this is providing large-scale baseload power generation with zero carbon emissions. We should, at the very least, keep that kind of provision running for as long as we can, because if it goes, it's very likely to be replaced not by renewables or other zero carbon power, but by gas-fired power generation. And also people are saying we should be thinking about the next generation of nuclear investment in the future. And as I say, that was a significant development in June in terms of the California legislature backing a small amount of money to keep Diablo Canyon open. Since then, much larger amounts have been pledged. And actually just uh, three weeks ago, the federal government uh, is now talking about um, a grant of over a billion dollars to help keep Diablo Canyon open because people accept those arguments about the importance of the source of, of zero carbon power. When you think about these changes and the way that people have started to think differently about nuclear power for both energy security and climate reasons, is there a really fundamental shift you think going on in terms of support that we're going to see for nuclear power in the future? I think one of the many long to medium term impacts of Russia's invasion of Ukraine is this reluctance, but very clear embrace of nuclear power around the world, including California, Germany, other parts of Europe. It is, to me, pretty shocking to see the shift. I remember going to a, a COP, a conference of the parties, the UN conference in Bonn, Germany, sometime around 2018. And I was talking to congressional Democrats and others, and they said, oh, we can't talk about nuclear power. We're at a climate conference. And yet to me, I was like, this is an ideal place to talk about nuclear power. Fast forward to this last COP in um, Sharm el-Sheikh, Egypt, there was a whole pavilion supporting nuclear power. Uh, and so I think this is going to be, this is a very big deal for the nuclear industry. It, it's, it's, it's important to acknowledge the climate benefits that come with nuclear power, even as there are risks and cost concerns and lots of other challenges with, with the technology. What I don't know and what I'll be looking for next year is how much this support extends to just existing nuclear power plants or if this will help give more support to uh, advanced technology designs and advanced reactors. That, I think, is a little bit more of an open question. June, to me, was a really interesting month for nuclear more broadly. So Diablo Canyon is certainly interesting. So facing the need for firm dispatchable power and the tension between climate ambitions and a desire to turn off what is existing, zero carbon power. At the same time, I know that we were all watching in France half of the nuclear fleet being offline because of maintenance issues. And then I think it was right at the end of the month, the IEA came out with that report like, highlighting the role of nuclear power in the energy transition. And this, I feel like, was setting the stage for a few more announcements. I know later in the year, we ended up having that announcement about Poland and you know, actually having nuclear reactors being developed in that country uh, to supply clean, reliable power. It definitely seems, I agree with Amy, like it was a turning point in a conversation to leaning into the need for firm power to keep electricity prices low and keep the bills to our homes low over time as we go to zero carbon and what that means for existing nuclear and then future new nuclear that could be built. 
I would love to chime in here and talk about sort of an adjacent technology to the fission technology that we've been discussing so far. Uh, as we are recording this podcast, there was a scientific breakthrough in fusion, which um, is sort of the, the opposite of fission. Uh, maybe I will let Melissa, definitely the more scientific-minded of, of, of the folks here on this call, maybe talk about the, the importance and details of that. But you know, the, the potential of fusion is enormous. Uh, what was um, announced this week is is the ability to have net energy gain in what is an extremely energy intensive process with fusion, the power of the sun, literally. Uh, so I think it's exciting. At the same time, it's not going to be powering our homes tomorrow. And, and that's OK. With a problem like climate change, you know, it's such a long, often slow moving challenge in that simultaneously things can be accurate, even if they seem contradictory. For example, this is a huge breakthrough on fusion. At the same time, we're going to need other technologies to get us through the next few decades. But climate change doesn't end at 2050. <laughs> Hopefully, right? Hopefully, Earth is still around and our descendants are populating the planet. So we will want fusion then. Uh, so I just wanted to note that and its significance and and how, you know, we might be talking about that a lot next year. Yeah, this is such a interesting one to highlight because I feel like it focuses our minds again on what we need for the long haul, to your point, Amy. So we have this breakthrough in fusion versus fission, which is what we use today. And we want those innovations so that as we continue to grow and prosper, we can do that in a way that doesn't undermine that prosperity by contributing to climate change. Absolutely. But we need to keep the lights on today. And we need to keep the price of electricity down over the coming decade, two decades. So it's the walk and chew gum argument. We need to innovate and invest in those technologies that are on the cusp of commercialization or maybe even more junior to that, but also deploy the ones we know that we have that work so we can get cumulative emissions down. Because it's not just about the endpoint, it's about the pathway to get to net zero. We all know that. You can't just you know, keep emitting as we are and then take a step function down that practically won't work, but also it risks just way overshooting the amount of emissions we can put into the air if we want to avoid the worst impacts of climate change. Utilities are facing an incredible challenge. They must answer the call for more renewable residential power while still affordably keeping the lights on. But how can utilities future-proof for EV integration and keep rates low? It's simple. By incorporating block energy, autonomous community energy systems in new neighbourhoods, utilities can easily offer cleaner, affordable, reliable power to their customers. Developed in partnership with Sandia National Labs and proven on Kirkland Air Force Base, this newsworthy residential microgrid solution has even shown its storm resiliency in the community in the path of Hurricane Ian. Uniquely, block energy is a front of the meter and utility-owned system. If you're a utility, now is the time to meet your sustainability goals while increasing access to resilient, renewable energy and keeping rates low. Visit blockenergy.com to learn how utilities can lead our distributed energy future and plan your block energy pilot today. So I want to move on to July and what was, I thought, a really interesting statement from the Organization for African Unity about. Africa's energy use, Africa's demand for energy, the need for energy to support populations, to raise living standards, and questions about where uh, Africa could source the energy to meet that demand. And the crucial line, I thought, in that statement, and I've got it here, it said, Africa will continue to deploy all forms of its abundant energy resources, including renewable and non-renewable energy, to address energy demand. So I think the overall message was they were not um, saying, forget about climate change. Climate change is not something we're going to be worrying about. But what they were saying was we cannot be prevented from using some of the higher carbon energy resources that we've got, in particular natural gas, in order to meet this growing demand for energy that inevitably we're going to have if we want to improve the lives of the people of Africa. Melissa, what did you think of this statement? To me, this was a real lean into practical conversation about pathways to net zero. 
And the idea that that pathway is very different here in the United States, where we already have a whole host of energy infrastructure on the ground, then and across the across North America, across you know Western Europe, it's just a really different conversation than if you are in Africa, where they've got around 600 million Africans living without electricity services and 900 million lacking access to clean cooking facilities. And so back to what the IPCC report also highlighted, which is these disparities. To me, this was a leaning into having a practical conversation about what a pathway looks like and what a pathway looks like in countries that currently emit essentially nothing and are going to look to emit something as they make their progress towards net zero. Net zero for them doesn't mean starting high and going down like it does for us here in the United States. It means going up for a bit is really what they were highlighting. And this role of natural gas is something that keeps coming up. And it's a conversation that needs to happen and decisions need to be made. So I thought it was a really, really strong and interesting statement to read and to think through. This announcement is also uh, one of the many ways that we circle back to the invasion of Ukraine. Uh, it's been pretty shocking to see European countries both revive coal plants and build LNG facilities in record time and even go to Africa to procure more resources for themselves, while at the same time trying to restrict financing from multilateral institutions to financing projects in Africa for them to develop their natural gas resources. I don't see how European officials can do that with a straight face. The irony is too obvious. And so that, to me, is one of the many upshots of this year, both the, the Russian invasion of Ukraine and the impacts from that, but also extreme weather itself and how it's affecting the entire world, but that it's the, the developing countries that um, struggle the most to achieve it. So I think you know, statements like this are showing that developing countries are going to have a seat at the table and they deserve that. And so I think that's something that at Cypher is definitely something um, we have been covering a lot this year and that we plan to continue to do. Yeah, I think that's absolutely right. I think it's clear that those kind of points and those arguments about justice and equity in the energy transition are only going to grow in importance as climate negotiations continue in the years to come. And that's definitely something that everyone involved in that debate is going to have to focus on much more sharply because those issues are very clear, they are unignorable, and we are seeing lower-income countries in particular start to make those arguments much more firmly and to really be very clear about what their position is. And that's something that the rest of the world is absolutely going to have to take notice of. I think it's right. So I want to come on to August. August, of course, was the month that the Inflation Reduction Act was signed into law by President Joe Biden. I feel there's almost nothing else to say about this on this show. We have talked about it many, many times um, over the past few months. The one thing I am particularly interested in now when I think about what happens next is the response in other countries and the way that this very, very significant bit of legislation for low carbon energy in the US is prompting action in Europe, in Canada, many other places around the world are being forced to respond to put in place their own packages for supporting their renewables, hydrogen, carbon capture, nuclear industries, because otherwise they know they'll be left behind in competition with the US. So that's the thing I still think is really interesting and is going to be worth focusing on in the future. I don't know, uh, Amy, what do you think? What is there left to say about the Inflation Reduction Act? You know, people will be writing books on this topic. And I know this great podcast has devoted a lot of airtime to it as well. So I just think it's interesting to see, going back to my comment about sort of two things that seem contradictory being true at the same time. On the one hand, right when it passed, you had world leaders cheering for the news and saying, oh, finally, U.S. is backing up its rhetoric with real climate laws. But, you know, barely the ink had dried on Biden signing the law that Europe and other countries were like, hey, wait a minute, there are some protectionist measures in here. So I think 
some of that is good. We need competition. Ultimately, we live in a capitalist society that thrives on competition. And so I think ultimately that will be good. Uh, but I do think there's a risk um, of protectionist wars going overboard. China, for example, just recently made some comments about that on this on this note. So I think that'll be something that we should all be watching next year. Yeah, this was a big one. We've covered it a lot. And I think that not only will books be written on what's happened to date, but also the impacts of this policy moving forward and what it does in terms of spurring other countries, whether it's our direct neighbors or our trade partners or other countries that are not our trade partners, what it spurs them to do. This is a this is a big one. This is really interesting. And it certainly will have an impact, no doubt, on the emissions that are coming from this country, which is really interesting. And it put us in a fundamentally different position going into COP than I think we would have been in. And then in September, we had another big political story in Washington, D.C., which was sort of linked to this, which was the question of permitting reform, which I think is often thought about as sort of the other half of the Inflation Reduction Act package. That act gave a lot of help to renewables, other energy technologies uh, in terms of tax credits and so on. But there are still issues in terms of actually deploying the capital that's needed, even if the economic incentives are right, because of well-known difficulties in the US about getting any kind of infrastructure built, particularly, for instance, the electricity transmission connections that are essential for renewables. Building new power lines in the US is really, really hard. And so there was this plan backed by Senator Joe Manchin of West Virginia, who voted for the Inflation Reduction Act, even though probably some of that act made him feel a bit uncomfortable because of the very generous support it gave to wind and solar power and to electric vehicles. But he backed it, saying that in return, as kind of part of the package deal, he also wanted reform of the environmental approvals process, permitting in general, and a reform package that he proposed, which essentially would make it easier to build fossil fuel infrastructure, oil and gas pipelines, for instance, while also helping the infrastructure that low carbon energy and renewables need. That plan came to Congress in September and got rejected. It built a coalition against it. There were some strange bedfellows. You had progressive Democrats, uh, opposed to it because they said it uh, gave too much weight to the oil and gas industry. And you had uh, Republicans against it saying that it gave too much to the renewables industry and not enough to oil and gas. And that was enough to block it. The initiative is not dead and it actually came back just this month again, but again, couldn't manage to build enough support in Congress. There's now talk that maybe they'll try and get it through uh, just in the very last few weeks of Congress before the new Congress comes in in January the 3rd. It's possible even that in the next Congress, even though the makeup of Congress will be different, you'll have Republican control of the House of Representatives. But as the support for this legislation is going to have to be bipartisan anyway, that might not matter. And because you've got this kind of deal, which maybe offers a bit to the fossil fuel industries and a bit to renewables, perhaps you can build that bipartisan consensus. So it hasn't gone away completely but it does seem to be quite difficult for it to make progress. Melissa, you and I have talked about this issue of, of permitting and getting stuff built a few times in the past. I think we differ a bit on it. As you know, I'm very much in favour of doing whatever can be done to make it easier to invest in infrastructure of all kinds, actually including fossil fuel infrastructure in some cases, uh, but certainly when you think about renewable and low carbon energy infrastructure. And personally, I think it would be a really good thing if somehow this package does manage to pass. But what's your view? I mean, I think that what we all agree on and what we all see is that the energy sector and the energy transition, it's infrastructure, 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 building a lot of stuff. The question is, how do we get that done? And in terms of progress towards emissions reductions and how far we go, um, with the infrastructure bill from last year and the Inflation Reduction Act from this year, so much of it really comes down to if we can get stuff built, which is 
siting, permitting, and financing, amongst other things. But it's the non-technical barriers, I'll say that, and just leave it as that one big term because it is so many things. And we've done many shows on different pieces of this. And so whether you are talking about renewables or hydrogen pipelines or other things, like you need to be able to permit it and build it if you actually, so how are we going to do that? And that's the big question. And how tense those conversations can be and how contentious they can be is highlighted by the fact that we haven't sorted it out. There's a lot of different interests going on. Um, and there's often tensions in that. So that's what this highlights to me. And it just, it's really important. It's something that we can't forget in the new year. And I doubt any of us working in the sector will. To quote Senator Brian Schatz of Hawaii, who said something uh, at some point this year that the environmental movement, which has organized around the principle of stopping mm -hmm. things, stopping pipelines, stopping export terminals, it's now having to redefine itself about how can we have an environmental movement on building things. So I will be looking to see how the progressive and environmental movement looks to coalesce around, okay, so they don't like what Senator Manchin has offered. What do they want? Uh, I hope to see more of that next year. And that is such an important point. That was a conversation that we saw change in the first half of this year into the summer, which is so many environmentalists and environmental groups saying, I've spent my career protecting this thing that is really important to me, but I can't protect it from climate change, like the IPCC report highlights that we talked about earlier. And so what do I do now? And that's the point you're highlighting, Amy. Like, what do I do now when actually protecting the thing I care about might mean building something that could also impact it. So how do I balance that and how do I have that conversation? So we come to October and the big news of that month was the decision by the OPEC plus group of countries somewhat unexpectedly to cut their oil production. They announced a cut of 2 million barrels a day in their output it wasn't actually, in fact, effectively that much because quite a lot of countries were already producing below their quotas. So the actual reduction in output was more like only about 1 million barrels a day. Even so, it was quite a shocking decision. There was a lot of um, interpretation applied to it. A lot of people thought it was a politically motivated move. People said that, for instance, uh, Crown Prince Mohammed bin Salman of Saudi Arabia was doing it uh, to create bad headlines for President Joe Biden ahead of the midterm elections. I don't want to get into any of that speculation. I don't really personally know anything about that one or the other. What I, the one thing I would say is that it's pretty clear that when you look at what's been happening in the oil market, it was actually pretty justified to cut production. Oil prices had been falling um, coming up to that decision, and actually they've fallen after that decision. And having been at over $120 a barrel for Brent crude in the summer, it's now about $80 a barrel. So it's certainly not the case. The world is desperately short of oil right now, despite everything that's happened in terms of the response to Russia's invasion of Ukraine. And a lot of buyers, particularly countries in the EU and North America, not wanting to buy Russian crude anymore. Despite all that, the world is pretty well supplied with oil. And so even putting all that political stuff to one side, it was kind of sensible of OPEC to want to reduce production. Is there something, Melissa, you've thought about much? What was your take on, on what OPEC's been doing? And I know that many of my colleagues here at the Center on Global Energy Policy have been following this. And our team here includes experts in every energy source for many reasons, including the fact that in this transition, you know, we have the fuels that we're using today. Fossil fuels will be with us for a long time. Some would argue they'll always be a part of the mix in different ways. Um, and that's a, I'll, I'll put a pin in that one because that's a whole discussion that we should have in the new year as well. But when it comes to all these different market dynamics, there's a lot of different factors at play. What have we been investing in the run-up to it? What are the geopolitical considerations and stuff that's going on? What are future projections on how much we're going to need? You know, what, what options do we have? And so you know, this was certainly a source of discussion within the center. So on to November and what was obviously the biggest story for all those of us who are 
Twitter addicts here, which is uh, Elon Musk's acquisition of Twitter. He seemed somewhat reluctantly pushed into it, but ended up having to buy Twitter because he said he would, and then has thrown himself apparently very enthusiastically into changing it in lots of ways, um, changing the content and feel of a platform quite a bit, uh, cutting a lot of jobs from the company and so on. And it does seem to have had quite an impact on his personal reputation and on the way people think about him politically. I, mean, I, I saw just a tweet, in fact, just before we started recording this show, someone saying, this is a tech entrepreneur, saying, I used to be proud of my Tesla, but now that at Elon Musk is a far-right conspiracy theory spreader and a bully of public health authorities, I'm embarrassed to be seen as endorsing him. I also sold my Tesla shares, which is just one person. But it does seem to be the case that Tesla is becoming a bit of a partisan brand. There was an interesting um, research from Morning Consult, which said that essentially support for Tesla has kind of flipped its political valence. So it used to be the case that Democrats liked Tesla more than Republicans did. And now it's the other way around that um, Tesla's net favorability among self-described Democrats in the US fell to an average of 10.4% this month, down from 24.8% in October. And among Republicans, it rose from 20% to 26.5%. So it does seem to be an interesting shift in personal perceptions of Elon Musk and of the Tesla brand more generally, which is quite odd in some ways because electric vehicles and support for the electrification transport is generally thought of as more of a uh, democratic and left-leaning type of interest. And so it's not clear whether Elon Musk is sort of alienating all the people who ought to be his customers, or maybe it's some very clever move. He's winning himself a whole new set of customers among people who would not otherwise have been inclined to buy Tesla. Um, but it is, anyway, quite interesting to see all these shifts. I don't know. Uh, Amy, what do you make of it? Is this is this significant anyway? Is this going to be significant for the progress of electrification in uh, the US? I think the obsession, I think that's a good word to use. I think the general obsession with Elon Musk and his purchase of Twitter and everything is is an adjacent conversation to what I focus on uh, with energy and climate technologies. And what I'm watching on this front is to what degree does Tesla start to lose market share as uh, electric cars really take off? And it's undoubtedly clear that Musk has expedited the electric vehicle transformation much faster than it would have been otherwise. But I'll be interested to see as electric cars become more affordable, how does Tesla pivot to that? And to what degree any of these Twitter shenanigans affect it? I think people who are just now realizing that Musk is unpredictable and can have controversial views, I think just haven't been paying attention. I do agree definitely that one of the key things about Elon Musk was his role as a catalyst in building Tesla into this huge stock market presence above it, anything else, um, the most valuable car company in the world by market capitalization. And that did have a huge impact on the rest of the auto industry and helped push a lot of other car manufacturers into huge investments in electrification. And they're all planning to launch lots of uh, EV models over the next few years and so on. Whether he now plays that role and whether Tesla as a company now plays that same role, I think is unclear because the industry is now changing more broadly, it's gathering a lot of momentum. I still think um, we're going to see EVs grow as a share of total car sales and probably grow pretty significantly in the US and worldwide next year. And I think people's personal opinions of Elon Musk and of Tesla as a brand probably don't have a lot to do with that one way or the other. I don't know, Melissa, what do you think? Do you think is this significant for what's happening in the EV market? I mean, I think it's significant in the sense that it's bringing even more attention to EVs. So, I mean, this has been a banner year for EVs. Um, we have seen tremendous growth in their sales. I know we talked earlier in the year about me getting on a wait list and actually in my own personal experience, getting that vehicle. And, you know, we've reached a point where electric vehicles aren't just for a tiny 
tiny, tiny percent of Americans and people around the world, but actually are more accessible to an increasing number of folks. So to Amy's point, it'll be interesting to see what Tesla's balance is in the market in terms of their market share compared to other companies. But I don't think any of us doubt the trajectory of where EVs are going. And so it comes back to questions of are supply chains ready to support that? How does the Inflation Reduction Act, you know, impact what manufacturers kind of rise to the top? Um, and how does that affect consumer choice? I mean, we will see that moving forward. I will admit that personally, I spent less time focused on the Musk story than a lot of my Twitter, energy Twitter friends. I, I did see the heartfelt messages uh, when this this deal went down. Uh, are we leaving Twitter? Is Twitter shutting down? What's happening next? Um, but gosh, there were so many things going on, uh, you know, with COP and everything else that just, you know, that wasn't the number one thing I was focused on. I will admit that. But I will say I, I agree with Amy wholeheartedly. It will be interesting to see what happens with Tesla next, what percentage of the overall market they're able to, you know, keep a hold of. And that will involve a lot of decisions that go beyond Elon and his choices about buying up different companies. I think that's definitely right. And I think it does sound like you made much more productive use of your time than a lot of people who did spend all of it worrying about Twitter. (laughs) (laughs) There are some definitely better things to be thinking about. I mean, because I will say I enjoy the energy Twitter community and I am glad it's still there. Yeah, no, I think that's right. That's right. It, it is a useful platform, but sometimes people, I think, fail to keep it in context and people live too much of their lives on there. And uh, I think that's probably not uh, always entirely healthy. So, Bringing us to the end of the year then, and and to this month, obviously the biggest thing in the world that's been happening in December has been the World Cup in Qatar. It has been pretty exciting, actually. If you're um, a football fan, it's been uh, pretty dramatic in lots of ways. There have been very, uh, some great games, some big upsets in terms of results, some fantastic goals. It's been really entertaining to watch it. From an energy point of view, it's been interesting because it's been claimed to be the first carbon neutral World Cup. Important to say though, this claim is being made on the basis of offsets, that the message from FIFA World Football Association is that all the emissions created as a result of the World Cup, most of them from travel, uh, more than half of those emissions come from people uh, flying to the tournament to take part and to watch it, the rest from accommodation, from the venues, and so on. FIFA has been saying all of those emissions are going to be offset. It's not entirely clear how they're being offset, though, and this clearly is a very long-running debate about the validity of offsets and whether they are really contributing to emissions reductions. And this is something I think that people are going to focus on with a great deal of scrutiny uh, over the World Cup, just because it is because it is such a high-profile event, and people will be very interested to hear whether they have actually kept their promises or not. Amy, what do you think? Do you believe that this is really going to be a carbon-neutral event? In one word, no. Uh, I will preface to say that I have not watched a single second of the World Cup. What? Which puts me in the minority (laughs) on this topic. But I do have pulled up an article from Energy Monitor, which does some great uh, reporting. And and they have a story out just this week on uh, this topic. And they have a chart here from Carbon Market Watch, which is a Brussels-based NGO. And this chart says that actually uh, this could be the most polluting sporting event uh, of other World Cups and Olympics. Uh, and so I, I you know, suggest readers take with a humongous grain of salt um, the attempts to neutralize this event's climate footprint through offsets. I just My last comment here would be, I think highlighting this is an incredibly important topic. Just as important, I would love to see an article on, okay, where and how could we host something like the World Cup in a way to make it sustainable? What city, what region of the world would make it a more genuinely uh, clean sporting event? And then how does that square with things like environmental justice and and including the whole world? But no matter where it's held, I will probably not be watching it. That is a great idea, though. I love that thought about uh, 
countries, cities competing to host the World Cup on the basis of how low their emissions are. The next one's going to be in the United States in 2026. I imagine they will again say that they want it to be a net zero World Cup, but clearly they will have to again rely very heavily on offsets if they want to say that, because I don't expect the US energy system is going to be at zero emissions or anything close to it four years from now. Melissa, you were saying you have been watching the World Cup, you have been enjoying it. What have you been thinking about its uh, energy and emissions implications? Oh, I I have just assumed um, from what I have seen and read that it has not been emissions free. Now, engineer, we all know that that's what I am at the end of the day. Um, And I think about system boundaries. And so even if you draw the system boundaries such that they exclude all the flights that people are taking, um, it seems like it's probably not going to be neutral. What I will say is, um, Amy, I respect that you haven't watched any of it, even the amazing quarterfinals that both went to shootouts, like between Netherlands, Argentina, and then Croatia, Brazil. Like, oh my gosh, talk about keeping us on the edge of our seats. But when it comes to all this, um, and I think for the next one, Ed, it's it's North America, right? So it's US, Mexico, and Canada. I will say I find that a very interesting model for how to do the next round with the World Cup. And I'm I'm looking forward to it. Um, but you know, I, for me, it opens up an entire discussion about offsets and what is verifiable, what percentage of current offsets are actually real and lasting, um, and where that entire part of this equation needs to go in the future so that we know we can rely on it. If it is going to be part of the equation, we need to know that it's real and that it is actually contributing to mitigating climate change. Because at the end of the day, the climate just cares about emissions going into the air. And if they're staying out permanently or only temporarily does really matter. And Amy, I haven't watched a Super Bowl, I will say, in years. Like I and I'm American and I have not. So, you know, we all have our sports that we love and and I respect. I respect that this isn't yours. So question, when is the first net zero Super Bowl? Mm. That'll be a thing to watch for. Very interesting. There's there's an idea for uh, someone out there. I definitely shouldn't answer that question. Who's got an idea? <laughs> yeah. No, it's a good thought, though, isn't it? So that does then bring us to the end of the year. Um, just time for our free electrons before we end 2022, finally. Uh, Amy, what's yours? Well, uh, I know we wanted to chat a little bit about uh, giving back uh, and kind of connecting it to what we do uh, um, with our day jobs. And so one thing that I've been wanting to do since I moved to Seattle a couple of years ago was join Big Brothers Big Sisters here in Seattle. And I'm uh, just starting the application process for that for next year, and I'm really excited about it. More relevant to our discussion today, though, is that they're launching a new conservation climate program at the zoo here in Seattle um, with, with children. And so I'm really excited to hopefully take part in that. The conversations I have with, with children and other younger people about climate change, it's just really fascinating. And they will be the ones who have to grapple with the hot world that we are leaving them with. So that's one thing that I'm excited about. That does sound fantastic. What a great thing to be doing. Yeah. Um, Melissa, what's yours? Oh my gosh. I am not honestly sure where to start with my free electrons. So uh, what I zoomed in on was two things uh, that we're doing here at the center where I'm sitting here today. And I will say we're recording uh, during a World Cup match my colleagues are watching it while also working diligently on their laptops. <laughs> and I was looking out at them earlier when we started recording. A bit jealous there. Um, but I'll say when it comes to our work going into the new year and things that we're focusing on, I mentioned them really briefly earlier this year, but we were revisiting them as a team today. And that's two big things that we're working on here at the center and that you know, are years in the making. This team has been working on the concepts and implementing them for years together as a team The first is the Carbon Tech Development Initiative. So it's this idea of how do we turn what is currently a waste product that's hurting us into useful things um, that we can use in our everyday. And that we put out our first round of solicitations this fall. I'm really excited to announce the first projects. Once they're selected, I mean, solicitations are still open, so um, they haven't been selected yet, but that'll be something to look forward to in the new year. And then also at COP, y'all heard me talk about how proud I am about our Energy Opportunity Lab. Like that's going to be just so fabulous. So the Opportunity Lab is saying, you know, as we go into the future, how do we go through this transition in a way that narrows equity gaps 
that acknowledges the one in three people in the United States that can't pay their bills, struggled, you know, don't choose to keep their heat going this winter or their air conditioning going in the summer to the detriment of their health. And then when we go outside of this country, back to what we talked about with the statements coming out of the African Union in advance of COP, how do we reconcile this tension between energy for development and our climate ambitions? And how do we make sure that we can prosper and grow as a world um, and as different countries in a way that doesn't undermine our progress and our growth and our prosperity? So I'm just, I've been doing a lot of reflecting on how privileged I feel um, to get to work with the people I get to work with every week, including y'all. And that's where my mind is when I think about my free electrons. It's being thankful and grateful for to be part of this team and to be a part of the great work that's going on in this space right now. It's a great time to be working in this as we make so much progress. Well, thank you very much. And that does sound like a great initiative. And likewise, it's been fantastic working with you and Amy and everyone else that's been involved in this show over the past year. My free electron, as Amy was saying, it's the season for giving. Just wanted to uh, highlight work that's being done by some of my colleagues. Really fantastic work. They're involved with a nonprofit called Let's Share the Sun, which is um, a group that provides solar and storage systems to relieve people in energy poverty, facing hardship in the Honduras and Haiti and in Puerto Rico. Um, our parent company, uh, Wood McKenzie for Risk, has given money for that. And we also send people down there to work, installing those systems, helping people use them and so on. Several of my colleagues have been uh, and been involved in doing that work. As I say, really fantastic work. If you want to check out what they're doing, you can take a look at their website, letssharethesun.org. And we also have um, a donation website if you want to give any money to support the work that they do. And I'll post the link for that on Twitter and on our website, you'll be able to find it uh, linked to the site for this show. And as I say, please do take a look, check out what they're doing. It's really great, really valuable work. And I'm very proud that we, as an organization, are supporting that. So that is all we have for you from the Energy Gang for 2022. Uh, many thanks, Melissa, for reviewing the year with us today. Thanks, Ed, Amy. This was great. Um, look forward to chatting with y'all again in the new year. And yes, many thanks to you, Amy, as well. You're very welcome. And thank you so much for having me on. It is always a pleasure. And I look forward to more conversations in 2023. Absolutely. It's been great talking to you both. And I hope we can do it again soon in 2023. Many thanks to our producers, Shakira Perez and Toby Biggins-Gilchrist. And above all, many thanks to all of you for listening. I hope you've all found The Energy Gang to be as entertaining and informative to listen to as we have, as we've been making it. As I always say, we're always keen to hear your thoughts, your praise, your criticism, your comments, your complaints, ideas for future shows, whatever it is you've got, please do keep those ideas coming in. As we've been saying, we're still on Twitter. We're still at, at The Energy Gang and I'm at Ed underscore Crooks. I hope everyone has a great holiday season. And we'll be back again in 2023 for all the latest news and views on what's next for the energy transition. Until then, goodbye. <laughs>